0: Welcome to the third episode of Value Investors Edge Live. I'm your host, Jay Mincemeyer, lead researcher for Value Investors Edge, a premium research service available on Seeking Alpha. Feel free to join our research platform and take place in future discussions. Today, we will be discussing the tanker markets with Euronav CEO, Hugo Destoop. For disclosures, I have no position in Euronav, but I am long some pure tanker companies, including International Seaways, stock symbol INSW. All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the third edition of Value Investors Edge Live. Uh, today we're hosting EuroNav stock symbol EURN. We have their CEO Hugo DeStoop, and head of investor relations Brian Gallagher live on the line. Uh, so EuroNav is one of the leading crude tanker companies, one of the largest U.S. listed fleets. Uh, they've been on the markets, uh, uh, listed in the Brussels, Belgium market for uh, over a decade, and then on the U.S. markets now for about uh, four years. Uh, we're hosting them today to talk about uh, IMO 2020 upcoming regulations and their strategy and their approach. Uh, we're also going to uh, discuss uh, a timely discussion of the Saudi disruption, uh, what the, the refinery impact is going to mean uh, to the crude markets and any sort of uh, storage there. We'll also look at some of the uh, company specifics and talk about how the uh, quarter and current markets are going. So with that said, uh, welcome Hugo to the call and welcome Brian as well. Thank you, Jane Thank you. So the first question is just... Very timely because it just you know we're recording on 17 September right now in the early morning. Uh, we just had this huge disruption uh, in the markets in, in Saudi Arabia due to uh, some sort of attack, and they're talking about five to six percent of global supply potentially offline. And we don't know at this point whether it's going to be you know several days or several weeks. Uh, we do know there's a, a conference call scheduled uh, for next uh, sometime in the next 48 hours. Um, but at this point, it does look like at least five percent of global supply is going to be offline for at least uh, at least several days, if not weeks. Um, how how do you view this as Euronav as looking at the crew tanker space? Uh, how does this impact your business and, and how do you see that going forward?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very um, very important uh, event that we saw over the weekend. Um, and, and quite frankly, we, we didn't know uh, until markets reopened on, on Monday, uh, starting with Asia, um, what it would do to our business or, or, or what it would do to the price of oil. I mean, obviously, we saw the price of oil jumping and it certainly adds uh, tensions and, and nervousness to the market because people can no longer rely on approximately 5% of the world supply coming from uh, a place which was always seen as a stabilizer, i.e. a buffering uh, uh, in terms of oil supply. So what it does to our specific market, which is the transportation of uh, crude oil, is that in in the short term, it it looks likely that there will be an inventory drawdown, be it in the region or uh, be it uh, in the OECD countries with a policy to store a certain number of days of Uh, consumption uh, on strategic strategic, uh, storage, and some of those will will obviously uh, need to be shipped. And what we see today in the different markets is that people really want to grab the oil that is available today, and where is that available? Well, uh, mostly in the Atlantic. So for the tanker uh, world, for the tanker industry, uh, it is a positive, simply because the distance is much longer. If you want to ship that to the Far East, to Asia, um, it's a much longer distance uh, if you're coming from the Atlantic than if you are coming from the Middle East. So that's the immediate effect, and we saw that in, in our rates already yesterday and continue to see that today, um, that it has a positive impact uh, on the rates. The, the big question is uh, how long will it last? Uh, and of course, you mentioned that we don't know how long the disruption will last. And so that's, that's not a question that we can answer easily, but certainly from a geopolitical point of view, the fact that the region is becoming more unstable means that people are likely to source uh, the oil if they have the choice from more stable regions and the more stable part of the world for, uh, you know, at at this point in time is the Atlantic. As the growing market is Asia, it is positive uh, for our
0: markets. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting situation because it would seem, you know, traditionally to, to get a big output drop in the Middle East Gulf and Arabian Gulf, if you will, uh, would be a big negative, right, traditionally speaking. But uh, with the surging supply from the United States and, and Brazil, uh, it, it would shift into more of a positive because, as you mentioned, the ton mileage is, is far larger, basically double uh, from those sources. Um, there has been some, you know, slower Know, ramp up of exports from the United States mainly because of uh, infrastructure, right? They, they don't have all the VLCC capable ports and that sort of thing. What have you seen on your end as far as uh, you know United States exports? Are are they exporting at the maximum capacity, or do you think there's potential for the United States to ramp up exports here in the coming uh, you know three to six months?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, if we if we uh, look at the history, I mean, in the last two years we have had uh, approximately two million barrel per day of exports, so that's very significant because <laughs> we were at less than a than a million barrel. Of uh, export two years ago. Uh, when we look at the infrastructure that is currently being developed, uh, most of which has been funded for, uh, but not entirely done in terms of work. And, and you're talking about pipelines bringing the oil to the to the Gulf Coast, and then of course, as you mentioned, the terminals uh, that need to accommodate VLCCs. For us, it's a little bit difficult to to say precisely when the pipelines are going to be uh, uh, done and and when when will they be del- um, delivering more oil to the to the coast and when those terminals are going to be available to accommodate the largest ships which are the vlccs in the meantime uh, you're seeing a lot of exports already on uh, vlccs but it's inefficient because it has to be uh, lighter in other words it has to be put on the smaller ship which can go into uh, the terminals and then ship uh, over uh, you know some some place uh, of anchorage for vlccs and then transfer to the vlcc before it can uh, go and sail on the, on the long haul uh, to Asia. So today it's, it's a little bit inefficient, but it happens. So obviously when uh, the infrastructure will be put in place, um, we believe that the export uh, will see an acceleration. And God knows that a lot of those investments have been made uh, with a key date in mind, which is January 2020, um, because people uh, believe, and and, and certainly at Jorana, we believe that too, that the the new regulation around the fuel, uh, and most precisely the sulfur content of that fuel, uh, will start with its origin, i.e. the feedstock, and the type of oil that you refine. And so if that type of oil is light, then it has a low sulfur content, and therefore it's easier to make... A few a few oil that has a low sulfur content as well, so we believe that the U.S. oil, the, the 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 type of oil that the U.S. is producing, being of, of a lighter version, i.e., poor sulfur content, low sulfur content, uh, will be seeked by the market much more than it currently is today, and so all that infrastructure has been planned to come online uh, around this key date, which is January 2020. So we're expecting to see an acceleration. And and certainly a rise in uh, the number of millions of barrels that are being exported from the U.S. around that date.
0: Yeah, thanks, Hugo. That's that's an excellent segue because, you know, the the number two topic we really wanted to talk about today is IMO 2020 and uh, what that means for your company. And and I know that a lot of firms out there are deciding to install scrubbers on either a portion or all of their tankers. Uh, Some, you know, firms are just going to buy compliant fuel and and see what happens. And I know you've taken kind of an interesting approach. Uh, You discussed it a couple of weeks ago on an investor call about how you are uh, buying uh, compliant fuel blends and, and storing them on one of your uh, ultra-large crude carriers. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of talk about that just a little bit more. Yeah, I know in the call you mentioned you might see a potential for scrubber installations down the line, uh, both recently and also now. I know it's only been a couple days, but with this disruption, have you seen any sort of shift in those spreads between kind of the compliant fuel blends and the uh, regular high sulfur fuel?
1: Well, let me first uh, answer the, um, the obvious question. So. Um, unfortunately, we had we had to rectify uh, what uh, I mean the way we were portrayed in the market. So we we have never said that we were against scrubbers. We just said that it's a highly speculative investment because we are being asked uh, to invest between five and six million per ship uh, with no visibility on the earnings linked to a scrubber, i.e. the spread between a high sulfur fuel oil that you can continue to uh, buy in the market and a low sulfur fuel oil, uh, which is a new type of uh, of fuel oil that you have to buy if you don't install a scrubber. And so it's that spread that can justify the investment in in a scrubber. And we just said that there might be a, a second mover advantage, as a matter of fact, the more we contemplate what is what is happening in the market, the more we believe that uh, there is definitely a second-mover advantage. And what do we mean by a second-mover advantage? Well, it's the the type of companies like Huronave who are waiting to see uh, not only the technology developing, but that's a very important aspect because we are hearing left, right, and center uh, from the yards who are retrofitting uh, existing ships, that it's it's a little bit uh, um, difficult, and and you hear a lot of uh, horror stories coming from uh, from those yards in terms of delays, in terms of difficulties. The way you have to think about it is is exactly the same as building a new house versus. Uh, refurbishing a house, you know, you 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 put down a wall and then suddenly you discover the cables and the piping that is behind the wall. Uh, but unfortunately, it's too late because you've destroyed that wall. Well, retrofitting of a scrubber on board a ship is a little bit similar experience. You can plan for as long as you you, you want, unless you have the experience of a sister ship. Then uh, chances are you're going to do a couple of things the wrong way. So the second mover advantage is is an obvious one here already because you will take advantage of the experience factor of the the, the 150, 200 ships that would have been retrofitted um, to be ready uh, on the 1st of January 2020 uh, and take that experience or factor or or expertise if and when you decide to do your vessels because they are all built in series in sister ships. uh, So you can be sure that any uh, ships that we have in our fleet would have been converted by another owner as a sister ship. Um, the, the second mover advantage is that obviously market is very crowded now, uh, not only in terms of yard capacity but also in terms of uh, uh, scrubber manufacturer. And then comes 2020. It, it I wouldn't say it's empty, but it's uh, you know it's 80% lower in terms of order book and in terms of yard capacity uh, than what you currently have, which which also means that uh, people will be ready to give you a discount instead of charging you a premium. And and, and again the delays that you see in the yards should be minimized by the fact that they're not overcrowded with the uh, with the number of ships that they need to retrofit. Um, the, the other part of the second mover advantage is obviously to try to take away uh, the speculative nature of that investment. Because we believe that comes November, December, and certainly January 2020, the derivative market for the LSFO, which is the low sulfur fuel oil, uh, would have developed uh, in terms of, of volume and pricing to a point where we can use it uh, as a hedge, uh, which means that we will have or we should have good vis- good visibility on forward pricing uh, and, and and assurance that it's uh, that it's a market that we can uh, use. Which means that if we were to decide to retrofit some scrubbers on board the ships, we can perfectly accumulate uh, the high sulfur fuel oil on board uh, another of our ULCC at the same time lock in the spread that we consider to be sufficient uh, to invest uh, into a scrubber. And then even if the scrubber comes, you know, two or three months down the road, which is time for ins- installation, uh, you have benefit from the economic since day one. So this is, these are all things that um, the current first mover don't have as an advantage to a certain extent, have a disadvantage. So their investment is more speculative. Uh, and on top of that, they have to suffer from being the first Uh, to retrofit their ships and and then suffer longer delays in a market that is that is pretty good and it's it's strange but it's the reality that a lot of those owners have decided to convert or retrofit their ships in october november december which are supposed to be a very good month and it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that they will be a very good month because obviously if you take a a good portion and, and we are talking about a uh, five to six percent of the world fleet going to the yard for being retrofitted. If you're taking that out of the market, out of the supply, then obviously the the rate should react positively to that. So that's the third aspect of being the second mover advantage that you you still benefit uh, from a market that is supposed to be very good. In fact, it's even better than it should be because the people, because a lot of people are taking their ships out of the the market, i.e., uh, out of the supply, and then when you do yours. You are trying to to time that with your natural dry dock uh, calendar, uh, which uh, which would have been impossible for us to do this year. So there's a there's a lot of uh, uh, high potential uh, for you know de-risking the uh, the investment uh, and nevertheless making uh, making it a return that is very similar to the others. Admittedly, we are one of the few uh, tanker companies that can do that because we are the only ones who have ULCCs. Those ULCCs. There is very little sort of a loss of earnings or loss of opportunity to earn because they are not being used as trading vessels, so they should not benefit fully from a, an improved uh, trading uh, tanker market, therefore the economies of scale are playing in full and using them for this purpose makes a ton of sense. But there are only two in the world and, and we own those two uh, units, so not everyone could have done that. In absent of uh, those uh, massive economies of scale, then it, then it becomes a little bit more difficult to, uh, to do what we have done so that's that's to answer your question on on the uh, on the scrubber and of course there is the the other part uh, which nobody has, has looked at uh, but everybody will be affected by and that is buying compliant fuel because everyone has to understand that all of our friends uh, in the tanker markets that have decided to retrofit their fleet have not retrofitted hundred percent of their fleet as a matter of fact the maximum they will retrofit is 60 percent. Uh, some others will do only uh, 40 or 50%. So they are they continue to be exposed to uh, to the market and, and to the price of LSFO. And and, and nevertheless, well, they've, they've not been able to do what we have done, which is accumulating LSFO in, yes, uh, one of our ULCC uh, at, a, at a time where the price of sulfur had not fully developed, simply because there was no demand. I mean, the change in regulation is on 1st of January, obviously, in, in, in March, April, June, July of this year, nobody wanted to pay a premium for the low sulfur content because they didn't have to use it. I mean, the premium will be priced in uh, as of, say, October, November, uh, potentially, well, certainly December, uh, and then, of course, next year. So we, we've tried. We've tried to do that, and, and to a certain extent, uh, we are very uh, happy about what we have done. Because when we compare the price that we have paid for uh, the material and the price that it currently currently see in the market, um, it's a very successful um, investment. Uh, and it's not really an investment in the sense that it's more a, a, a management of risk uh, in terms of pricing, but also in terms of quality and in terms of quantity that we can have. Um, we continue to be exposed for a portion of our fleet, but definitely the uh, 420,000 tons of fuel that we have accumulated into our ULCC will will help us mitigate uh, at least part of uh, some price uh,
0: surge. Yeah, absolutely. And and thanks for really getting into the kind of the structure and, and the explanation for why you're taking that second mover advantage. I, you know, I can understand you you want to see the you know spreads and see a developed futures market and know exactly what type of investment you're taking. So you know, if the spreads are very large on uh, on day one. You know, you don't necessarily, you know, get those scrubber profits, uh, but the spreads don't really affect you as much because you've already bought the fuel. So so on regards to that, you mentioned that you have two ULCCs, uh, but I know you're only mentioning, or at least you've only mentioned that you're utilizing one at this point. Uh, so first of all, is there is there a plan to utilize that second one? And if so, uh, where would you position that at? Would you uh, would you spread that out around the world or, or what's the plan there? And then secondly, uh, you mentioned that you locked in kind of the, the lower spread, right? Because people didn't want to pay for the low sulfur content. Uh, what kind of movement have you seen in that spread? Uh, over the few months since he first purchased it? Has there been any movement very recently as well?
1: Well, the, the easiest question is about the other ULCC. The other ULCC is today uh, on time charter to, uh, to a third party, so not Euronev, to, a, in fact, a trader. is also located in uh, Singapore region, and the contract runs until the end of the year. After that, we will see, and I guess that we need to be uh, completely opportunistic about what we do. As I said, uh, if we were to consider an investment in scrubber, uh, part of the strategy would be to accumulate uh, high sulfur fuel oil this time, and not no longer the low sulfur fuel oil, which means that we would probably need the ship and, and, and start filling it up. And That's the only way that you can benefit from the economics on day one, even though you don't use your scrubber before they are installed, uh, obviously. And then for the other part of the spread, you're using uh, the derivative market, as I explained. So that's, that's the, the, for the Europe and the same for the Oceania. I mean, when she will be empty, we will see at that point in time uh, what we do with those two ships. And, and, and I guess we have always uh, tried to be very uh, opportunistic uh, in, in, a, in a very volatile and uh, unpredictable market, and we'll continue to do that. The second question was about, well, the the price that we've paid and and we've announced in the webinar and, you know, I would recommend to uh, follow the webinar because above and beyond Euronav strategy, it explains, I hope, (laughs) very well what the IMO 2020 means for the market, what were the options that uh, the different ship owners uh, had, how has it uh, developed since last summer uh, and up, uh, up until now. Um, so it's it's quite interesting from a market uh, perspective and not only a euro perspective. But so to come back on 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 the price, so we paid on average for the uh, uh 4 so the low sulfur fuel, of 447 dollars. Uh, we have also accumulated some uh, MGO, which is a 0.1%. Um, but so on LSF4, 447 today in Singapore retail price is probably around 530, 535. So almost $100 more. Yes, uh, it has had um, a a little surge in recent days. Uh, Before that, I mean, at the time we did the seminar, it was $515. What is uh, is more worth noting is that the the, the spread between LSF4 and HSF4 is is going a little bit all over the place. Uh, And certainly the events that we saw uh, over the weekend uh, have made the HSF4 surge, uh, but the LSF4 has... uh, less reactant as such, less than the HSFO. So wh- what is interesting to see uh, in the market is the volatility and the complete decorrelation between the, the different products. So um, for the ones that have tried to use MGO, for instance, as a proxy to hedge LSFO, uh, well, so far it has not been a good bet because the correlation, which was which was high but on low volume. Was good until uh, the middle of the year, but since the end of the summer has uh, completely uh, um, well stopped and and, and been uh, decorrelated. Uh, so it's very important that a derivative market starts developing for the LSFO as well, and we can we consider that the HSFO and the MGO derivative market will continue to be there, as well as for the Brent and, and other products, uh, uh, of course. So the spread has moved. It has moved from time to time. It has narrowed, certainly. F- since last year where it was 400 it has narrowed to close to 200 now it has widened a little bit more uh, to 15 to 20 depending on where uh, which market you look at. Uh, but then uh, extraordinary events uh, commence extraordinary search uh, certainly in terms of HSFO so suddenly the HSFO has become very expensive and therefore the spread has again narrowed with the LSFO.
0: Yeah, it makes sense, Hugo, and, and of course, we won't know uh, for sure what those prices are going to look like until we get into 2020, right? And we actually start seeing uh, the real-time demand. It's just kind of interesting to see the dynamics uh, with the Saudi disruption and actually see kind of the opposite of what we you know, initially expected with uh, HSFO going up. And then uh, that does sort of, uh, with, the, with the price of that fuel going up, it, it sort of flies in the opposite face. Right, of kind of what we were expecting, right? Because we'd expect uh, that fuel to act otherwise start going downward. Um, you know, you, you have all your fuel uh, in your US, ULCC stored and I know you plan on utilizing that in your tankers. Have you done any sort of uh, hedging on, on that fuel price uh, to lock some of that in or do you just plan on consuming that? And where I'm going with that is, uh, say, that's, say that fuel price goes up uh, even further, Either do both the IMO 2020, or just because crude oil itself uh, increases, will you be recording any sort of profits then as we enter you know quarter one, quarter two, and you start consuming that fuel?
1: Um, well, it's a good question. It's a, it's a little bit uh, on the accounting side um, because uh, the the way you we account for that is is really inventory, which means that we're going to use it uh, on our own fleet. Uh, at this point in time, we have no intention to sell it to third party, we we might swap it because obviously it will be available in Singapore and from time to time we will need uh, to bunker our vessels on, on the other side of the world, so we, we might swap Kent quantities with other parties with that uh, same type of fuel available uh, well on the other side of the world. In in terms of profits, you should see simply a a better TCE because if you pay less for your fuel, it means that uh, your voyage result, which is expressed in our market in uh, time charter equivalent, i.e. a rate per day, uh, should improve simply because in order to calculate the time charter per day. You uh, take the freight, which is a lump sum that uh, your client is giving you. You deduct the voyage-related expense, and the biggest one is obviously the fuel that you consume, and you divide by the number of uh, days for a return voyage to your destination. Um, so, if you pay less for the fuel, then you have uh, more. You can keep more of the freight, and, and it drives the TCE higher. The, the problem that we already see uh, in the market going forward is that uh, we're going to compare apples and oranges. Uh, which is a little bit of a, of a risk for the investors that, that don't, well, I would say enough attention, uh, because you may compare people using scrubbers and who are paying uh, for a, an HSFO type of fuel, uh, which is likely to be cheaper, and we don't know what, at what spread, but likely to be cheaper than LSFO. And so they might have a better TCE, but in the meantime, they would have invested five or six million. Which is not reflecting the TC because the TC does not take into account the depreciation of uh, of that investment. So that's just a word of uh, of caution um, as far as uh, uh, investing into this market are concerned. Uh, certainly, when they they come and judge the uh, performance of each uh, each of us in the market.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, Hugo. And it's good to know that your you know time charter equivalent will likely be higher, right, because the fuel costs will be lower. Um, but at the same time, it's you know interesting to look at the different companies and what exactly they're reporting and, and what exactly the outcomes of that would be. You, you know, we, we talked a lot about VLCCs at the start of our conversation and, and what that would mean, kind of the shift over to the Atlantic and, and how that increases ton miles. Uh, but about half your fleet is Suez Max's. So what what do you see the impact being for that sort of market? Is, is the society disruption and IMO 2020 mean a lot for Suez Max? and if so, what what are the impacts?
1: It's a very good question. It's a a little bit uh, more remote because the AG is definitely a VLCC market. Uh, As a matter of fact, the the ship was invented. I mean, this size of ship was invented because uh, of the increase of oil production uh, in the Middle East. But nevertheless, the the, the VLCC is a little bit the mother of all uh, tanker markets. And so there is no market that can go very high unless the VLCC uh, is at uh, elevated levels and it means that there are certain correlations between the different uh, tanker segments. The highest correlation is between the VLCCs and the Suezmax, and so um, when the VLCC goes up, usually the Suezmax goes up, uh, otherwise you end up uh, splitting the cargo, which is highly inefficient uh, way of uh, transporting your oil. Concretely, today we have seen a more moderate movement on the Suezmax market, which is totally normal because you have to give it a life uh, to the VLCC market before it is being reflected on other segments. Uh, but we definitely expect that if uh, if it was uh, to last, and, and that's what, what we definitely think it will, if it were to last in the VLCC market, you will uh, start to see to see it in the Suez max uh, in the coming days or coming weeks. I think, Hugo, if I can jump in here, it's Brian Gallagher. Um, one of the things we mentioned, uh, Jay, on our um, IMO presentation on September the 5th was we did anticipate to see more arbitrage trade flows from for the Suez Max. So obviously notwithstanding this week's events, um, our, you know, our, our trading desk there is looking at trades from Europe to the U.S. Gulf Coast, from Latin America to Singapore and from China to Singapore in actually taking and using that arbitrage and transporting potentially um, low sulfur fuel oil. So that's something which we think this,
0: the, we'll see as a benefit coming through or, or once we get through January uh, 1, 2020 on the Suez Max trade. Very interesting. Thanks uh, Hugo and and Brian again for jumping in on that one. Um, While we're on this topic real quickly, uh, talking about SuezMaxes, I I know you're storing your compliant fuel in a ULCC, right? And and I know there's some VLCCs that are being converted for storage. Are we seeing any SuezMaxes utilized for storage or or transport of, of these compliant blends? Or is it primarily just direct arbitrage routes at this time?
1: Well, what what, uh, what people need to understand is that um, when the market is uh, in a situation where it is worth storing it, uh, in other words, in, in contango, i.e., the price of the product, in this case oil, but it could be also fuel oil, is higher than the current price, then it's worth uh, storing it as long as the spread between the future price and the current price is higher than the cost of storage. So, economies of scale, again... Uh, will mean a lot to that because a VLCC, uh, if you have to pay um, 30, 35, 40,000 for a VLCC, you can store 2 million barrels. Uh, Chances are that at the same point in time, you will have to pay 30,000 for a Suez Max if you pay 40,000 for a VLCC, for instance, Uh, but you can only store 1 million. So this is very much uh, a game uh, played in the VLCC market because of uh, what I just explained. And, And the people who are playing that game are obviously, well, most of the time the traders, and that's because they have very large balance sheets, as you can imagine, holding 2 million barrels uh, at today's price for six months. You need a balance sheet to do that. So today we have seen, uh, I believe Clarkson's is is, uh, is uh, counting 14 VLCCs. I mean, Brian can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, we haven't seen that many uh, Suezmax. What we did see a little bit earlier this year uh, is... 14 Siriusmax being uh, used as storage. That was uh, in the North Sea, and the reason for for we oh sorry the Baltic uh, is because there was a lot of contaminated fuel oil uh, coming from Russia. Uh, and in order to deal with that problem, they decided to store it on Afromax. Some of them were from Sovcomflot Flot and, and, and sort of Russian uh, uh, ships. Um, but it meant it, 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 they only did that not because they were playing a contango, but because they had a problem and the, the port in which they had a problem could only accommodate uh, At As we speak, they are um, trying to dilute uh, the problem to a bigger pool of bunkers, well, to a rate where it's no longer contaminated, no longer a risk. And obviously, that means that they are discharging that uh, uh, fuel from Afromax into largest storage uh, tanks on land or largest uh, ships, but when we when the market is talking about storage, it's really a VLCC uh, feature, uh, absent of um, you know any exceptional things uh, as I just mentioned.
0: Yeah, it definitely makes sense. The, the economies of scale are large, and you know before the Saudi disruption, we were starting to see a bit of a contango, and of course now. Uh, you know, with the front month prices spiking up, uh, we're we're back into uh, backwardation, if you will. I think it's about three dollars right now through January, and about six dollars down, you know, through next June. So it's almost like an inverted uh, shift on the market there. Um, do you expect that some of the storage uh, that's floating will will get drawn down now that we have this backwardation? Will that will that add a sort of uh, almost like synthetic supply into the market, or how do you see that going at this point?
1: Well, I'm 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 not an expert. I'm certainly not a uh, a trader. Uh, but normally, uh, what tends to happen is that the the, the trader uh, try to minimize their risk by locking in the profit that they see. So if if you have a curve uh, in contango and you see that you have um, let's say a you know a, a more than one dollar profit per month, so six dollar over six months or twelve dollar over one year, you will book the ship, put the oil on board, lock in uh, the uh, uh, the derivative contract i.e. locking your profit, uh, and then you will only be delivering the physical oil at the end of uh, the contract. Otherwise, you have a mismatch between your derivative contract and uh, your physical uh, uh, exposure to a market. So, in other words, I do not expect to see uh, a number of ships delivering the oil that they currently have on board because very, very few people would have done that on, on a completely speculative basis. They would have Uh, protected themselves, and then it means that they have to go uh, all the way uh, until the end of the contract.
0: Yeah, very interesting. I, you know, I was just curious if we might see some of those contracts getting amended, but you know, of course, with with the direct futures contract, that might not happen. It'll just be something we can watch and, and see what happens there. I will shift a little bit to you talked about having your massive cash balance, and, and Euronaf certainly has the strongest balance sheet of all the firms that we cover. And you you actually added more capacity recently, adding some more uh, unsecured debt, uh, increasing your cash balance further. Um, what are your priorities uh, with that cash balance? I know you need some of it, right, to do the fuel hedge program. Uh, you're maybe keeping. Some on the side in case you want to do some of these scrubbers Uh, but how do you think about that cash balance are you looking at acquisitions or uh, share repurchases or uh, further investments Uh, what do you think about these days
1: yeah i mean thank you very much for the question because um, i i think that there has been a little bit of a confusion uh, in the market and, and we are completely guilty about that confusion because liquidity for us does not specifically mean cash so on the balance sheet we have something around 200 million of cash which for a company of our size uh, is appropriate. Now, the rest of the liquidity, uh, and, and you're right that we have uh, at this point in time more than 800 million, so the, 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 the roughly speaking 600 million uh, that we have is parked, is available under revolving credit line or credit facilities, which means that we have financed our vessels and instead of taking say 50% leverage, or 50% financing on vessels that we have on the water, We've told the bank, well, we don't want a term loan. We want a revolving credit facility, which will reduce, instead of amortizing, but reducing a similar uh, profile as a term loan. So, in other words, you do have the cash that you've used to, to finance your ship. Above and beyond that, and that's different between usually 50 and 60% or 50 and 65% leverage, it is available. It doesn't cost you anything. It costs you, you know, some, some minor commitment fees, but if we are talking something ridiculous. It's there for when you need it. And so what do we do with that? First and foremost, we, we, we like to be humble about the market and we like to say that we can't predict the market, so we always need some sort of a buffer that is there, that is committed, that can be drawn, in case we go into a very deep crisis, like we have seen from time to time in shipping markets. I mean, I'm certainly thinking about, you know, the early uh, years, 2000, before uh, a fantastic uh, cycle. Um, certainly the uh, the years that followed the financial crisis uh, after 2008, uh, which was very volatile, but nevertheless, on average, not very good. And so at this point in time, from time to time, we were burning cash. And so we like to to have at least two years of, of liquidity buffer, as we as we call it, or liquidity runway. Um, we have a little bit more than that uh, at the present time, and that's just a function of the way we finance our fleet and, and the way that, that we have repaid uh, some of those revolvers down. We have demonstrated that when it comes to balance sheet management, um, we like to be conservative. I mean, um, today we are probably a little bit under We recognize that we would prefer to be around 50%. Uh, and so we did not hesitate uh, since the beginning of this year uh, to deploy some of that cash uh, into share buyback, uh, which has a, a definitely a huge value for existing shareholders. And it's a lasting value as opposed to dividends, but it's not... Uh, buyback or dividend. We have done uh, both. We have a minimum dividend policy, uh, and we have uh, the possibility to do buyback and to do more buyback. But you will have to recognize that what we have done so far this year, IE 30 million, is the largest uh, buyback program ever done by this company. Doesn't mean that we've done enough, but it means that we've put uh, quite a lot of money uh, into the market, and certainly at a time where we felt that the share price was not reflecting the real value of Euronav and not even the, the intrinsic value, i.e. the NAV value of Euronav. So those are the things that we, we constantly uh, think about. When it is share buyback, we are obviously uh, from time to time a little bit more restricted due to uh, inside information. And, and it's true that until we did the webinar, uh, there was a lot of information we had about the fuel. We had accumulated prices uh, that we've paid for, so it, it, it would not have been appropriate uh, to, to continue to, to do the share buyback. So We always think about share buyback, dividends, further acquisition. I think that in the last uh, four or five years, we have demonstrated that we were uh, always there to acquire more vessels uh, if the value was correct, uh, if it was the right point in time uh, in the cycle. Uh, We have done two massive transactions, but we've done also smaller deals, Um, so everything is possible. But we're certainly not the type of of management that that feels the pressure uh, of doing something for the sake of doing something because people tell us, well, we haven't done anything recently. uh, Yes, but hang on a minute. We just did a merger last year. So we don't believe that we haven't done anything. And the thing that we've done last year was a fantastic preparation uh, for the future and specifically for IMO 2020 because all of the vessels that we acquired were eco-ships, i.e., Uh, In terms of consumption, they were uh, not thirsty at all.
0: Yeah, thanks, Hugo, and it's a good job uh, they're spelling out kind of the balance sheet uh, issues with, with both uh, the high liquidity, but not necessarily uh, quite as large of cash. Um, I, indeed, we did see the, uh, the sizable repurchases during this year, and that, that is uh, interesting as far as the what you consider material information ahead of uh, August and September as well, because I think uh, investors were kind of wondering, you know, hey, the prices went down a little bit, you know, why didn't you capitalize? I think that that explanation uh, definitely helps out a little bit. You know, one thing I didn't hear in that response was any sort of discussion about, I Either, uh, second-hand acquisitions or new builds um, on that token as well we're, we're starting to see some news about LNG uh, dual fuel uh, VLCC's uh, so first of all do you have any interest in adding to your fleet and uh, second of all have you done any look uh, into this uh, LNG fuel technology uh, do you have any interest in that either in terms of ordering or in terms of retrofitting your
1: fleet well two very good questions and uh, uh, yes of course uh, we are interested in that uh, technology Uh, We know that the next challenge uh, beyond IMO 2020 will be what is currently being called IMO 2050, but it really starts in 2030 and and then has another lag in 2040, and that is about decarbonization. So anything that we can do to decarbonize the fleet at the same time as making good investment uh, kind of makes sense. And and it seems that the LNG, even though it is a, a fossil fuel, uh, in terms of uh, emissions, not only CO2 but also SOx and NOx seems to be a, a, a much better solution than uh, than the fuel oil. So yes, we're looking in, into that. Uh, yes, we are looking to uh, continue to expand, continue to try to consolidate the, the market or help the market consolidating. Uh, it, it is always a question of uh, what is the right thing to do uh, and when uh, are you doing it. Uh, today, when you look at uh, uh, the market uh, and certainly the new building market, uh, it seems that uh, it is becoming attractive in terms of pricing compared to secondhand values. So, of course, you always need to decide whether you have a prompt delivery uh, because you're buying something that exists in the market or whether you order something that will be delivered to you 18 or 24 months down the road. So that's something that we keep in mind. Uh, and then w- when it comes to technology, uh, I think that the YARDS are trying to sell the last uh, slots of the current technology uh, before they move full steam ahead on the new technology i.e. the LNG dual fuel. But it also means that premium they are asking for the uh, LNG dual fuel vessel um, and certainly for the VLCCs is at the moment very important. So. Um, To justify uh, such a big difference in prices, you you, you need to have an assurance that either the fuel that you will use, i.e. the LNG, will be very cheap uh, and will justify this premium or uh, that you will work hand-in-hand with a um, a charter, i.e. a client, uh, and that the client will be ready to pay a premium uh, for him to be able to uh, use the, the, the benefit of the discount uh, between the LNG and uh, the lsc 4 that you would have had to use otherwise. So that's, that's a little bit where the conversations are going. So I think that buying such a ship's on a speculative basis, uh, it might be a little bit too early. It, it might come soon, but it might be a little bit too early. I mean, you need to have guarantees on, on the savings you're going to do uh, uh, on the LNG and make sure that it's available because at the moment uh, in the Americas in general, i.e. North and, and South America, it's more difficult to find LNG to bunker your vessels. Or uh, finding a a client that wants to to partner into such project and uh, and can see and reap the benefits of paying partially or in terms of time charter rate the premium that we have to pay to the shipyard.
0: Yeah, thanks, Hugo. That, that'll be something for all of us to watch as it develops both the cost of uh, potential retrofitting and also the new build orders and, and how that transpires. I know so far we've really only seen one major order, and it was definitely uh, speculative at this point. So we'll circle back, as I'm sure, in the next coming quarters as we, as we get more information.
1: I, I don't know to which order you refer, but I don't think that there's been any firm order. I mean, the way it, it works in, the, in our market is that you signed an LOI, and as you hold that LOI, the letter of intent, uh, you try to shop it around uh, with some customers, uh, showing that if they are ready, you are ready as well. Uh, we may have an, a, a slightly different way of approaching our customers, uh, but it doesn't mean the order has been placed. Far from it. It is true that some ships are already using LNG as a fuel. Uh, that is no more and more common, if not the norm, into the, the cruise space, but let's all remember that the cruise ships are stopping. Uh, almost every day uh, into a port, so they don't have voyages that last 40 or 50 days, uh, like our uh, vessels. Uh, And then smaller vessels, such as uh, Aframax have been done uh, using the dual fuel technology, uh, also because they they are sailing over a shorter distance than uh, a VLCC would do.
0: Yeah, thank you, Hugo, for that clarification. Yeah, our, our understanding is it's a letter of intent for 10 firm vessels and up to four options. So yeah, as you mentioned, it's nothing firm at this point, just, just kind of speculative uh, nature in that. Uh, so yeah, Hugo and, and Brian, thanks again for your time today. Right before we close, especially because it's a topic on everyone's minds and especially for those just joining us, um, you gave your IMO 2020 presentation in September, and which you were quite bullish, of course, on the markets and you presented your strategy. Uh, now, just two days ago, we had this massive disruption from Saudi Arabia. So given today, right, 17 September versus how you felt about the market two weeks ago. Uh, Given all the events that have transpired and sort of the uncertainty in the Middle East Gulf, are you more bullish, less bullish, uh, neutral? Uh, What is kind of your overall take on the market?
1: I'm probably uh, slightly more bullish than I was uh, two weeks ago. Um, You know, it's a little bit unfortunate that um, some of the events that are uh, dramatic that you see on TV when you watch the news, uh, as a human being, they are dramatic, but uh, quite often for the tanker market, they are very positive. Uh, it, it is sad to recognize that, but uh, normally that's the way uh, it works because when people are nervous, uh, they want to have the assurance that they have the necessary feedstock, i.e. Uh, the crude oil, uh, that they can proceed uh, in, in their refineries or that they can process in their refineries. So um, I'm I'm slightly more bullish about that, uh, even though I, I hate to think that uh, tensions anywhere in the world are, are positive.
0: Yeah, thank you, Hugo. Yeah, it's it's definitely a balance, right? Because we don't want to, uh, you know, get too excited or or celebratory or anything like that. Uh, But it is also, right, a course of business in terms of transporting crude and, you know, delivering a service to the rest of the world. So definitely a good balance there. Uh, Hugo, thanks again uh, for your time today on Value Investor's Edge Live. And uh, Brian, thank you as well for making it in. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Feel free to join our research platform and take place in future discussions. To read my research, please navigate to seekingalpha.com and search for Jay Minsmeyer. To access our premium content, you can navigate direct to minzmeyer.com. That's M-I-N-T-Z-M-Y-E-R.com to sign up for a free trial. For disclosures, I have no position in Euronav, but I am long some pure tanker companies, including International Seaways. Stock symbol I-N-S-W.